Today's topic from Ecclesiastes is kind of a heavy topic. And the topic that we're going to talk about today is not meant to make you feel sad. That is not my intention at all. I just want to talk about a reality that we all face as human beings. So I'm just going to jump right into it. There's a preacher who a few years ago put on Twitter, I think it's called X now, but it was called Twitter then, it was a one-question poll for anybody that wanted to answer either yes or no, and the question was, if you could know the exact time and date of your death, would you want to know? If you could know the exact time or date of your death, would you want to know? A couple hundred people, I think, voted on this, and I saw the results 72% of the people that voted said no, they would not want to know. 28% said yes, they would want to know. I did not vote, but my thought was no. Why would I want to know that? That would mess with my head way too much, and there is a reason that we don't know. I don't think we could handle that. But the one thing that we do know that the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us is that we're not going to live forever. Everybody's time will come to an end. There's a watch that was created several years ago called the Ticker Watch. There we go. So, it's a countdown watch. They use the algorithm that the government uses to predict the average life expectancy. So when you get the watch, you put in your information and your age and all the other thing that goes with, everything that goes with that. It's got your prediction of when you might die, and then it counts down. So every time you look at your wrist to look at the time, down there at the bottom, the local time, you also see how many years, how many days, how many months, how many minutes, and how many seconds you might have left to live. How many of you would want to be reminded of that every time you looked at your wrist? Well, some people say they find it helpful, but most people don't seem to like it. Last example, and then we'll get into the text here in a minute. Uh, There's a a guy named Dr. Leslie Weatherhead who calculated, he mathematically calculated the average length of a human life using a 24-hour time period. So if you look at a clock, like based on what time it is or what age you are is what time you may be until you get to midnight. So for example, if you're younger, if you're 15, it's 10.25 a.m. for you. You're awake. You're ready. It's not even lunchtime yet. That's a good time. But then you get to age 25, still a good time, but you're, you, you just ate some lunch, right? Maybe around noon you ate lunch, your food's settling. You get to age 30, and now you're getting a little bit later in the afternoon. It's 1.51. If you're 35, it's 3 o'clock. You're mid-afternoon. I'm older than 35, but I'm not quite 40. So if you're 40, it's 4.08 p.m., and then you just keep going, 45, 5.15, 50. 625, if you're 50, you're right around dinner time, unless you have little kids, it's past dinner time. Age 55, 724, 60, 842, 65, 952, and if you're age 70, you're in the last hour. How many of you like this example? Does it make you feel good today? You glad you came to church? Okay. Uh, sometimes I wonder if, it, if anything will get your attention. Maybe that will. Just saying, hey, here's how much time you have left. Well, we don't know. This is all just an estimation. But I'm looking at that. I'm humbled by it. I'm like, I'm mid-afternoon. You know, I'm way past the early morning. I'm way past even the early afternoon. I'm mid to late afternoon now. The book of Ecclesiastes, one of the main themes that you see throughout the whole book is that life is short, and to just put it bluntly, without trying to dance around it a little bit, we're all going to die. 
Death is the great equalizer. Death is the great leveler. If I were to ask you, do you think about your death or do you think about the fact that life is short? You would probably say no and you would resent the question because people don't like to talk about it. Back in July and early August when you know I'd been preparing this Ecclesiastes series, but I spent two weeks during my study break where I really dove much deeper into this book, research project, every day I was in Ecclesiastes. I had lunch with a few friends to take a break. I told them I was studying Ecclesiastes. They asked me what I thought about it, and I said, my thoughts after spending this much time in Ecclesiastes is that we're all going to die. And they just said, I don't sound interested. You know, that doesn't sound interesting. I don't want to study that. They didn't want to talk about it. People don't want to talk about it, but this is one big theme. And one of the negative views of death being the great equalizer, as we see early on in the book, if you go back to chapter 2, you know, it's kind of talking about how we all have this expiration date. Life is on loan for a short little while, and someday God will call it back. Chapter 2, verse 13 through 15, Then I saw that wisdom excels folly, as light excels darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, but fools walk in darkness. So there is advantage to having wisdom. We need wisdom, godly wisdom, to guide us through this life. But look at what he says next in verse 14. Yet I perceive that the same fate befalls all of them. Then I said to myself, what happens to the fool will also happen to me, or will happen to me also. Why then have I become so very wise? And I said to myself that this also is vanity. It is hevel, that's that key word. There is no enduring remembrance of the wise or the fools, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How can the wise die just like the fool? So you get the idea of what he's saying here. Wisdom is important. If this is Solomon writing this, Solomon was the wisest person who had ever, ever lived at that point. All this wisdom, and it's important to have wisdom, there's advantages to wisdom, but you're going to die just like the village fool is what he's saying. And that seems to bother him. And then not only that, do the wise and the fool share the same fate, but he says there will be no enduring remembrance of you. Especially in those first two chapters, he keeps coming back to that idea. Is you're going to be gone, and then nobody's going to remember the former generations. Nobody will remember you, no matter how wise you were. Uh, we talked about how Solomon was the goat, the greatest of all time, of wealth and wisdom last month. And I don't know if you remember that lesson, if you're here for that. We went through different sports and different categories. Who would be considered the GOAT, the greatest of all time? Well, we talked about, or I said, Tom Brady for football. A few years ago, you know, if you don't know who Tom Brady is, he won seven Super Bowls, which is unprecedented. He was asked in an interview what he thought about all these rookie quarterbacks coming up and uh, doing great and getting all this attention, and he said, that's just the way it goes. He said, soon I'll be retired. Not long after that, you will slowly forget about me and you'll move on to somebody else. And here we are, season one after his retirement, and he's not talked about near as much as he once was, and his memory will slowly fade. That is what Koheleth is basically saying about life. No matter how wise you are, no matter how much you have, the same fate befalls us all, and nobody's going to remember us. A hundred years from now, nobody will remember that we ever existed. Again, nice encouragement on a Sunday morning. Flip over to chapter 3, verse 19 through 20. He says, For the fate of humans and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. 
They all have the same breath, and humans have no advantage over the animals. For all is vanity, all is hevel. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust they return again. Same concept, same thought. Humans and animals, although we're much smarter than animals, I like to think, and we know that our death is coming and animals don't know that, we're still going to share the same fate. The survival rate is zero. Nobody's getting out of this alive, whether you're an animal or you're a human being. And that seems to bother the teacher. This theme of death, the shortness, the brevity of life keeps coming up throughout the book. Uh, This summer we took a trip to the beautiful ocean of Galveston, Texas. The only time the water is not black is when the sun is setting, and then the water looks nice for about 30 minutes there. But we, the kids had a blast. They don't know any different. They made sandcastles. They made all kinds of creations in the sand. Jessica would bring these buckets, and they'd fill them up and flip them over. And it was great, but then evening comes, or whenever the tide rolls in, and guess what happens? Just washes it away, right? So the word toil is an important word in Ecclesiastes. You think about your work, you think about all your effort in life, and you can think about the sandcastle on the beach is our toil that we spend a lifetime building, and death is like the wave that just comes and washes it away. That's his viewpoint. Or you think about a candle. If you light a candle in your house or your office to try to make things smell better, and then you need to leave, so you blow it out, you see that trail of smoke going up in the air. You can smell it, you can see it, it's real, but you can't hold on to that smoke. You can't put it in your pocket for later. Now that is a clue to our human condition. Life is short. Life is like that vapor. It's here for a moment, you can't grab onto it. It's elusive, and then it's gone. And that is the negative view of death that he has throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. He's basically saying it doesn't seem fair. The wise and the fool are going to die You know, it's not fair that the wise die just like the fool. The humans and the animals are going to die. It's not fair that humans die just like animals or the righteous and the wicked are going to all die. They all share the same fate. Death is the great equalizer. Okay, that's the negative view of death in the book of Ecclesiastes. But when you get to chapter 7, which is where I'm landing today, he seems to turn to a more positive note when it comes to to this theme of of death or the shortness of life. And and going from that negative view, like death is a great equalizer, to this positive view that actually death has something to teach us. Death, Death may be your least favorite teacher, but your most effective teacher. We'll walk through these first four verses, and then I'll try to share with you what maybe we have to learn from this. In verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, A good name is better than precious ointment, And the day of death, better than the day of birth. So let's start with the first part. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment or fine perfume. When he says a good name, he's talking about your reputation. When people hear your name, what do they think about? Does your name make people cringe? Because the memories of you, the thoughts of you are haunting them. Or when people hear your name, does it bring them joy? Because you're full of life and love and joy. What? Does your name bring with it? Well, if you put on perfume, anybody put on perfume today? Okay, nobody's going to admit it if you did. But if you did, it smells good, and that's great. We'll sit close to you and enjoy that smell, uh, but then it's gone. 
I, I went to the gym last week. I got on the elliptical machine, and I was beside a lady who put on way too much perfume. And so I'm doing the elliptical machine, and I'm trying to like cover my nose while I'm doing it because it's just too much. I wanted to tell her like hey, it's too much, lady, but I didn't. I didn't say that. That that's what I, those are the things I say in my mind, but I don't say them out loud. But, you know, a little bit of perfume can go a long way. Keep that in mind. But it's gone. The smell passes. A good name can endure forever. In the second part of verse 1, he says, The day of death is better than the day of birth. How could that possibly be? The day of birth, that's a day of joy. I have two children. So I've been there from that side as a parent and celebrating and feeling that joy when your kids are born, your family comes to visit. Everybody wants to hold the baby. They're ooing and aahing, and it's such a great celebration, and there's so much potential when somebody is born. However, you don't have a reputation when you're born. All people can say about the baby is, oh, I see a little bit of his mom or his dad and him or her or the grandparents. You see some resemblance, but the day of death, not that death is better than birth, but the day of death, that is when your reputation comes full circle and it's all talked about. A good name. And at the end of your time when people remember you, what will they say about you? What has your reputation earned? In verse 2 it says, It's better to go to a house of mourning than go to a house of feasting. For this is the end of everyone, or death is the destiny of everyone, and the living will lay it to heart. I've done, conducted, preached at, so many funerals over the last 15 or so years that I, I have lost count. I cannot remember how many funerals I've spoke at. So I guess in that sense, I've been close to death or those who are suffering the loss of somebody that just passed away. And in a lot of these funerals, I'll often quote Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 2. It's kind of been my go-to funeral passage. The house of mourning, well, that's referring to, in modern terms, what we would talk about as a funeral. And I will tell them at the funeral, look, according to this verse, we have something to learn here. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Uh, an author named David Gibson said there's two types of people at a funeral, the fool and the wise. The fool goes to a funeral and sits there and thinks, I cannot wait to get out of here. I just want to go back outside. I want to go do something fun. You want to forget about it. My early days in ministry, before I was asked to speak at funerals, uh, I was the, the youth minister who became the sound room guy at funerals. So I played the slideshow, clicked through any songs that were there, and made sure the volume was right. We had this back room, and we had to dim the lights so you could see the screen through the audience. And I remember, in my, I was 23, 24 years old, sitting through these funerals, looking at these slideshows, feeling all sad, thinking, I can't wait for this thing to be over with. I just want to get out of here. Well, David Gibson's saying that's what the fool thinks. But the wise person can sit there and evaluate their own life and realize that someday we will all be in this place. So it doesn't mean that you have to think about death all the time. That would be morbid. It would be strange to just sit around thinking about it. But you do need to think about it from time to time because he says death is the destiny of everyone. Continuing the same thought in verse 3, he says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of countenance the heart is made glad. It's not that there's anything wrong with laughing. Laughing is good. It's good for your heart. God has wired us this way. 
But continuing the same thought at a funeral service, at a house of mourning, you find sorrow. And it's in this sorrow that maybe the lessons that we're learning sink in a little bit deeper. It's in times of sorrow that maybe we can be matured. Maybe we can contemplate life on a different level. So he's continuing that same thought from the previous verse. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn. From time to time, maybe we need to do a little bit of holy mourning. And then in verse 4, and I'll stop after verse 4 and just say a few words about how death is a great teacher. But in verse 4 it says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth, or the house of feasting, or the house of pleasure. This verse is talking about the difference between escapism versus reality. Escapism is that fool that's at a funeral, or the house of mourning, that just wants to get out of there that wants to ignore the pain, that wants to ignore the fact that maybe we will all die someday and we're, we're not going to be here forever. That's escapism. But reality is facing it. It's sitting there for a moment in a time of sorrow or a time of mourning and facing the reality of your mortality. So take these four verses and then kind of the overall theme of Ecclesiastes and the questions I have is why is it better According to Koheleth, according to the teacher, why is it better to go to a house of mourning, to a funeral? Why is it better to think that death is the destiny of everyone than to just ignore it? Because it seems advantageous to just ignore it. Like earlier in the book, he's talked about how we should just eat, drink, and be happy and find satisfaction in our toil. Wouldn't it make more sense to ignore that and just enjoy the moment that we have? How? Is death a great teacher? Well, there's a few reasons. One is the death reminds you to live with intentionality. When you hear of those who are gone, when you are at a house of mourning, it's in those moments that help you remember to be intentional with the time that you do have. Look, as human beings, we all have limited time. We need to be reminded of that. And it's in these moments that these lessons sink in a little bit deeper. So I'll try to get... A little personal for just a moment without sharing people's stories. But in all the funerals that I've conducted, my routine normally, if it's possible, is to get together with the family. So it may be a spouse, it may be a spouse and some children, usually it's adult children, sometimes grandkids or cousins. And if possible, we'll sit around the room, whether it's a large group of family or just a few family members, and I'll pull out my computer and I'll just type and I'll ask questions. Tell me about him or her. Tell me about their faith. Tell me about their life. Tell me about memories that you have. Tell me about their character. And I type as they talk. And I can tell you that I personally have learned a lot from funerals. I have listened to some stories from some of your family members and other people that maybe you don't know and I've listened to adult children talk about their parents or grandkids talk about their grandparents. And honestly, as sad as it is, it, I left feeling inspired because the person that they were talking about, the life that we were about to celebrate, inspired me to be, go home and be a better father and a better husband because I realized someday maybe my kids will have to stand before a preacher and tell the same types of stories. So what do I want them to tell about me? And on the flip side of that, 
I'll tell you, early on in my ministry career, when I kind of graduated out of being the sound room guy and got a chance to do some funerals, somebody asked me to do the funeral of their sibling whom I had never met. I, was, I had not read Emotionally Healthy Discipleship yet. I did not realize that you could respectfully decline, and so I said yes. I had never met the person, but I, I told his siblings who went to church with us, if you want me to speak at the funeral, I've got to meet with you first, because I've never met this guy, so I need to just hear from you. And I'll, I'll be a collector of stories. I'll share the stories. I met with the siblings. They sat in my office, and I said, well, tell me about your brother. And silence. Tell me about his faith. Nothing. Do you have anything that you can share with me? And I was trying to prod them along, and then finally one of the siblings said, look, we, we just don't really know what to say. To be honest, he wasn't a very nice person, and he didn't really like people, and he wasn't around us a whole lot. And I said, do you realize what kind of funeral service this is going to be? I didn't know the guy, and that's all you've told me about him. Now, they did go on to tell me some childhood memories, and I was able to just kind of speak in a way where let's just comfort the family here and you know, talk about the plan of salvation. And you know, So I was able to say some things, but that made me sad. I was like, you know what? You know, as a younger guy, I'm having kids and I'm thinking about life and these funerals are making me think about my own life and evaluate myself. What do I want people to say about me at the end of my time? What would I want my kids to sit around and talk to a preacher about and tell that preacher or my spouse, this is truly the type of person he was? There's some sad reflections, like I just shared with you, he wasn't a nice guy and didn't really like people. But then there's some other sad reflections that don't appear sad at first. Sometimes you meet with families and they're like, oh, he loved his hobbies. He loved hunting, fishing, playing golf. He played golf every day. Oh, he loved watching the Rangers, whatever it may be. Hobbies are not bad. But the sad part about that is that's when that's all they have to say. So if you spent a lot of your life spending a lot of time on things that in the end really don't matter that much. But then there's meaningful reflections. And I've sat with families and I've heard a lot of these meaningful reflections when they say things like, he or she really loved Jesus. I've had families hand me the Bible of the person who was recently deceased and say, look at their Bible. And you flip it open and everything is just underlined. There's a star here, a note there, bulletins where they took notes and there's all these, you could just tell they spent so much time, like my mom, my dad, my grandparents spent every day in God's Word, memorizing God's Word. They loved Jesus, and they showed it by the way that they lived. They were dedicated to their church, and they were always there for me. We had so many quality conversations. They passed on so much wisdom to me. I've had families say, I'm not going to share it with you, but they did a lot of things. They were very generous that nobody will ever know about because they weren't seeking credit for it. I've heard those types of things, and those are what I would consider meaningful reflections. When you get to the end, death is the destiny of everyone, everybody should go to a house of mourning, you evaluate your own life, and in the end, what will people say about you? And I've heard both. I've heard both extremes, and I've heard some things in the middle, and I promise you it's made me evaluate my own life quite a bit. So Ecclesiastes is teaching us live life backwards. Think about the end, and then live into that. 
There's an author named Donald Miller that wrote a book called Hero on a Mission. I listened to the book last year, and this week I went back and re-listened to a, a large section of the book. Because in this book, even though he's talking about how to live and be a hero in your own story, and then eventually become a guide for someone else, he talks about death a lot. Not to be morbid, but he has you, a whole section of the book, reflect on your own death. And he's not even been reading Ecclesiastes. But he takes you through an exercise where you can write your own eulogy. Not because he's trying to force somebody, hey, you need to say this about me when I'm gone. It's for himself to read. And he has questions and he has different things that he takes you through so that you could write your own eulogy. But he said that his morning routine every day is when he wakes up, he reads his own eulogy. And no matter how tired or grumpy he may feel, reading that is a reminder of what he needs to prioritize in his life that day. And that's a daily reminder for him. Living life backwards. That is, I think, essentially what Ecclesiastes is teaching us, is you start at the end, and you know the end's coming, so wherever you're at now in the present, live into that. What kind of story do you want to live for the kingdom of God? And I know that death is a weird topic. And so I felt a little uncomfortable going into today because... As some of you may be hurting, and I don't want to you know, draw up some of those painful feelings in you. Some of you, you don't like this, and you're excited that Aaron's preaching next week because you need a break from all this Ecclesiastes talk. I don't know how this is hitting you, but I do want to tell you that if you're a follower of Jesus, talking about death should not be that weird. Because we have a Messiah who came to this earth. He was born to die. And he was very open about that. Read through the Gospels, and over and over, he's telling his disciples, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and it's going to be pretty brutal. It's going to involve a cross. He told them that over and over, and then he invites us, not just his disciples 2,000 years ago, but us today, to die. To die to ourselves, and to pick up our cross, and to follow him daily. And for those who fear death, maybe you don't want to talk about it because, not just because it makes you uncomfortable or makes you sad, but because there is some kind of fear deep down inside of there. And there's lots of books written on how a lot of the sin in the world and in our lives is rooted in our fear of death. Well, Jesus, Jesus frees us from that. The passage that Bryce read earlier from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, we're human beings, He too shared in their humanity. Jesus Christ, the incarnation, He shared in our humanity so that by His death He might break the power of Him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. The devil, our enemy, the evil one, holds the power of death and He holds it over us. But Jesus broke that power and freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The Hebrew writer is making a bold proclamation, but what the writer is saying is you actually don't have to be afraid of death. Easier said than done. And it's not ignoring death. It's fully entering into the pain and the suffering that is involved in death because you don't get to resurrection without going through the death first. But he's saying because Jesus went there and Jesus didn't stay dead... But He resurrected, 
that that actually frees us from being afraid to die because we know that on the other side, in Jesus Christ, there is resurrection. So the book of Ecclesiastes is teaching us, look, it's sobering, it's a sobering reminder, but live life backwards. You know the end is coming. You're not going to live forever. What kind of person do you want to be? What do you want said at your funeral? And where you're at now, live into that. And then Jesus tells us that you're not going to live a very good story for His kingdom unless you die to yourself now and pick up your cross and follow Him. If you need help on your journey of picking up your own cross and following Jesus, if we can pray for you, if we can help you in any way, come talk to us now. You can come up front, but you can keep that conversation going long after our service is over today. I'm going to invite you to stand. We'll continue to